All right. Well, good morning, everyone. It's, it's a blessing to be able to gather together this morning as the Lord's people here at Honeyridge. And I must say, I'm, inc- I'm incredibly delighted. I'm so excited to be able to preach this morning on the topic of the church. Uh, for anyone that knows me knows how annoying I can be because this is one of the topics that I, I absolutely love to speak about. If you get into a conversation with me, this is where I want to go. I want to go to the gospel and the local church. And this is really something which I, I see as so important. It has implications for how we live, uh, for how our doctrine is shaped, for who we submit to, for who we lead, uh, for who we care for most directly with these short years that the Lord gives us on this earth, for how God feeds and nurtures us, and for how we understand that unique balance between authority, love, and holiness. In other words, it's important. And as our church looks back over 40 years of God's faithfulness, we do so only by God's grace and only through the finished work of Jesus Christ. One element of these services over this month, which has truly impacted my heart, um, and looking again today at the, the ex-pastors, um, has been hearing all the, te- all the testimonies of, the, of those that have been through the life and ministry of the local church here. Decisions made, buildings built, communities reached, evangelism done, ministries run, but most importantly, that Honey Ridge is a product of God's grace. And so as we gather, my desire would be this morning that God would use His Word to bring us to a biblical understanding of what the church is so that we can apply ourselves to what God has called the church to do. This morning will be a little bit different from the last two weeks, however. Both Clinton and Shane anchored us in a single text, and we spent most of our time unpacking that text. Um, from, from my side, my cards on the table, uh, I struggle when I look into all of Scripture to see the absolute scope of what is written on the church. And so instead of going through one text this morning, I'm going to try to take us to all of Scripture to be able to show us what God has, says, what God has said about the universal and the local church. Um, and that's going to be to be able to answer two questions this morning. What is the local church? And what is the local church meant to do? And in that, I'm going to touch on the universal church, but I am convicted and convinced from Scripture that God's priority, uh, His work within our lives as Christians, is fundamentally expressed through the unique gathering of the local church. So if I were to ask you, what is a local church? What is a church? What is the universal church? What comes to mind? Perhaps for traditional people, it is the building here at Honey Ridge at the corner of Knopisdurin and Bayes Nordia and Eastwood. Uh, perhaps for some young people nowadays who are disillusioned with the idea of formal religion, uh, we are the church. Perhaps for those who are oriented towards justice and mercy, the church is God's vehicle of bringing His goodness, grace, justice to this world. And perhaps for the individualistic folk out there, they would say, I am the church. While there's elements of truth in each of these statements, none of them paints a full picture. And a a quote that I've learned from Michael Horton, a Presbyterian pastor in America, is that when a a half-truth masquerades as a full truth, it becomes no truth. And so when we misapply what God's Word has said about God's church, we actually start to focus on one element. We build an entire ministry around that. We, We focus all of our efforts and our resources there. And in a sense, we make an idol out of what we view the church to be as opposed to submitting ourselves to what God has revealed in His Word. And so I want us to start off by thinking of a few methods of how the world and even some Christians define what the church is and what it does. And I'd like you to think about where you find yourself in this list. For some people, your view of the church is pragmatic. 
There are sinners and a dying world who need saving. So let's just get the job done. There is no right or specifically wrong way. There is something that needs doing, and we need to apply ourselves and just get the work done. For others, your view is experiential. Maybe you found working at one point in your life uh, a certain aspect of church, and that is now how church must be. Uh, perhaps for, for some, you grew up with a certain style of music or, or worship in the church or a certain ministry which really meant much to you, and now a church has to have that in order for it to be a church. This is common for us as Baptists who are often called people of the book, but unfortunately, what is often true is that we become people of a self-written book, which is our church constitutions. For others, your view of the church is cultural. And I know this is going to step on toes. I'm going to try to step on all of our toes at once so that no one gets too offended. But in most conservative Afrikaans churches, you won't find a man or a woman not very, very well-dressed. And that is because part of being a Christian is also how you look. In many African traditional churches, you'll find services lasting hours and hours with a major focus on singing. And in many westernized English churches in South Africa, you'll find that what dictates the length of a church service is less so the length of the text that we're working through, or perhaps even the amount of songs we want to sing, or the fellowship that needs to happen, but rather the importance of Sunday lunch. And still for others, it's influenced more by our day-to-day -day environments. Those in the corporate sphere sometimes push the church to look more like a business than a gathering of Christians. Those in the creative fields want to have more of a focus on mood and vibe and environment, entertainment, than on the content of worship. So what's my point? Well, my point is not to lambaste these views particularly, but rather to say that our views must be based off of Scripture. Otherwise, all we have is one another's opinions. What I want to contend for this morning is that as Christians, we go back to Scripture. We allow God to define His church and its practices. We humble ourselves and repent of where we've become individualistic and unhinged from a focus on God. What I'm assuming then, and these are my cards on the table, I'm assuming that God has chosen to build a church and in building a church, he is the one who defines it, and in defining it, he is the one who gives it purpose. So let me try and do that this morning. Let me try and convince us, before we look at these two questions, to look to God's word for how we are to define the church. Well, in the first place, I want us to see that God is not silent. And this was a major standout point, a contrast between the true God of Scripture and the false pagan gods in the world. The other gods were wooden statutes or carved images and idols, piles of food or created objects, even creation itself like rivers and mountains, rain or sun. And what was common amongst all of these gods is that none of them spoke. They were silent. Their followers followed them purely out of a desire to follow them, not because they were commanded to, not because they wanted to, but because they were afraid. What we see in Scripture is instead that God speaks. He makes Himself known. And just to do a short survey of Scripture, in Genesis 1 and 2, we see the story of creation, which is one of God's speaking. In Genesis 3, after the fall, Adam and Eve sin, and God speaks. He comes to them, and He speaks to them. In Genesis 12, God speaks to Abram, and He covenants with him to form God's people. In Exodus 12, God calls Moses, and He speaks to him to go to Pharaoh. In Exodus 19, God meets with Moses on Mount Sinai and gives His people the law. Through the judges, God speaks to discipline His people and the nations. Through the prophets, God, God warns His people and the nations to repent. Through Christ, John records that He is the Word made flesh. In the Gospels, Jesus' life and ministry is recorded. In the epistles, Jesus, uh, in the epistles God speaks to His churches through the apostles. 
through the pastoral epistles, God instructs His church and its practices. And in the book of Hebrews, specifically, we see God intentionally connecting the Old Testament speech to the New Testament speech, showing us that there is one God who speaks. In short, God speaks. And in the second place, then, the reason God speaks is because God wants us to know Him. Paul writes in 2 Timothy 3.15 that the Scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation through Jesus Christ. John writes that Jesus' miracles are recorded that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we may have life in His name. Paul writes in 2 Timothy 3.16 that Scripture equips us for every good work. And Jesus Himself says in Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20, that we are to go into all the world and make disciples, and do what? Baptize them and then teach them everything that Christ has commanded. Peter says in 2 Peter 1, verse 3, that it is the knowledge of Jesus, His teachings, His life, and His ministry which equips us for life and godliness. Now, some might still ask, what is the purpose of having all of this knowledge? Well, I'd like to make three observations. Firstly, it is important that we know God's will for us and for the local church because our minds need renewing. Jesus prays in John 17, verse 17 to the Father. He says, Lord, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Proverbs 3, verse 5 and 6 tells us to trust in the Lord and not lean on our own understanding. In all our ways, acknowledge Him and He will make our paths straight. If we assume that our thoughts are God's thoughts and that we get to define the church however we please, even our lives, God's will perhaps, then what we will find is we will walk towards an idol of ourselves. We will walk towards a God made in our own image as opposed to walking towards God. Not only do our minds need renewing, but also, and this is a big one in South Africa, true unity in the church only comes from a clarity of God's Word. I remember in school, and perhaps uh, reminisce with me for a moment, what it was like to do group projects, those big school projects as a group, uh, and they always ended in one way. Everyone gives their opinion up front, and then the loud, shouty, noisy person, or as the teachers called them, the leader, gave their view to the group. The group would compromise and go with the leader's view. Now, that's not true unity. When praying for the church, Jesus prays in John 17, verses 20 to 23, I pray not only for these, his disciples, but also for those, all Christians, who would believe in me through their word, through the apostles' teaching. May they all be one, unified, as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. So notice what Jesus says here. Jesus prays for unity, but what is that unity based on? It's based on the taught word. I pray for those who would believe in me through their word. So the way to true unity in the church then is not for everyone to have their views heard, but rather it is that all of us submit ourselves before God's Word. And lastly then, it is important for us to know that God speaks so that we don't offer strange fire. Now, if this sounds a bit strange to you, it's all right. Let's jump back to Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 to 3. Uh, In this passage, we see two men, Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, and these men are attempting to worship God. This comes directly after Moses has been instructed by the Lord to to bring about the ministry of the priests, those that would serve the Lord in a function of between God and man. We see God giving specific laws, rules, regulations, methods, and instructions on how He is to be worshipped. And the people 
had gone too long in doing their own thing, and in God's corrective love, He gives them how He must be approached. So God, in His grace, gives these priests the law, His law, His commands, and He says, this is how I will be worshipped. And then here we find ourselves with Nadab and Abihu, ignoring the obvious events that happened right in front of them because they wanted to worship God in their own way. Let's read what happens. Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, each took their own firepan, and they put fire in it, and then they put incense on it, and they presented unauthorized or strange fire before the Lord. And here's the point, which he had not commanded them to do. Then fire came from the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. And it's important for us to highlight the emphasis of this passage. God places an incredibly high value on His own definition of how He is to be approached. Notice at the end of verse 1, and they presented strange fire, unauthorized fire before the Lord, which He had not commanded them to do. So God had spoken But at the same time, he had also not spoken. What he did say, he expected his people to honor, obey, and to follow. And those things that he did not say were off limits. In other words, God's priority for his worship is him. It is about him giving us an opportunity to approach him safely because he is a holy God. What we don't see in Scripture is an emphasis on ourselves needing to become creative in our means to approach God. No, rather what we see in Scripture is that God, in His grace and mercy, gives sinful man an opportunity to come to Him, but He says this is how it must happen. For us then to be obedient to God, what this looks like is that our lives must be shaped by His commands. We are to die to our own desires and to follow Him. And what we see in Scripture is that we cannot approach God however we want. So let's summarize these thoughts as we move on to answering those two questions of what is the church and what is it here for? God has revealed himself in his word. And secondly, it is not for us to go outside of God's word to figure out how to worship him. And this includes the church. So now I'm sure as you would have noticed, uh, we're gonna be going through various texts and uh, my commitment to the, to the first service because I understand I'm gonna be moving around is that later this week, I promise I'll send through my outline with all the texts. So if you do get lost following all the references, please don't worry, I'll send them all out this week. Um, but just follow with as you go and, and let's try and work our way through what scripture as a whole says on the church. So then what is the church? For anyone interested in a, in a quick deep dive, um, it's a short book. I would really recommend that you read Jonathan Lehman and Colin Hansen's new book called Rediscover Church. It was written during the lockdown period, during the COVID pandemic, um, so it's very relevant to what we're dealing with today, but what they do is unpack the theology of God's Word in light of our present circumstances to show that God has spoken, He has given us clarity, and this is how we can worship Him. Uh, For anyone who would like, I'm going to leave a few books at the information desk after the service. Please feel free to take them. They're free. My only only, uh, request would be this. If you do take one, please read it. And then after that, contact me and let me know what you've learned from God's Word through the book um, about what the church is. I'd love to be able to hear how the Lord has been working through it. So for us to answer that question then of what is the church, we first have to ask the question, who is the church? Well, firstly, what Scripture attests to as a whole is that the church is a group of Christians. Last week, Shane led us through 1 Corinthians 15, where he spoke about the power of the gospel, the priority of the gospel, and the promise of the gospel. 
And we saw that the power of the gospel is God's raw, sovereign, electing grace to bring a people to himself for his own purposes, for his own pleasure, and for his own glory. These are not people that sinned less. These are not people who were more deserving. These were not special people in any way. Rather, it is that God set his love upon these people in his own mercy. The power of the gospel is then without God's intervention. Not a single one of us would be saved. And therefore, not a single one of us has a reason to boast. Paul writes in Romans 3 verse 11 that no one is good, no one seeks after God. He says in Romans 3 23 that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So we're not good enough to bring any good to God, and if we were to bring any good to God, it wouldn't be able to convince Him because we walk away from Him. And this is why Jesus says to Nicodemus in John 3 verse 3 that even in order to see the kingdom of God, you must be born again. He doesn't say that you need to pray the sinner's prayer or you need to be saved through baptism. He doesn't say sign the honey-rich statement of faith. He says you must be born again. So the church is a group of sinners saved by God's grace through faith in Christ, drawn by the Holy Spirit for the glory of God. We'll touch on this a little bit later in the sermon again as we come around in our last point, but it is not only a group of Christians as in a generic group of Christians. God has not commanded these sort of unmanaged groups to exist. Rather, what we see in Hebrews 10.25 is that Christians are to not neglect the gathering together of the saints. So think about this image with me for a moment. If we were to imagine the South African Springboks rugby team, or perhaps Bafana Bafana, our soccer team, these teams go off to a tournament. And as they go to a tournament, they go to practice in the morning, and then in the evening, they're in their hotel rooms, all separated in their own rooms, sitting by themselves. In that moment, does Bafana Bafana and do the Springboks still as a team, do they still exist? Well, yes, of course. But are they in that moment, while separated, fulfilling the function for which the team was created? No, absolutely not. And that is the same as what we see with the local church and the universal church. In the universal church, we find every single believer, every believer from South Africa to Cameroon, to those that are truly converted in Israel, to Russia, to uh, the furthest points of the Atlantic, to the entire world is filled with God's people. Those who are truly converted, they make up the universal church. But the local church is not simply an expression of the universal church. It's not merely those who seek to come together. The local church is God's priority for the universal church. It is the means by which he brings about all the one another statements. It is his way of conveying his grace and his mercy to his people. It is his ways of giving the keys of the kingdom of God through the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper to the church. It is his way of discipling his believers and disciplining those who are not. So are we all meant to just attend a local church then? Are we all meant to simply go from church to church, maybe finding uh, the thing that this church does really well? Perhaps you really like an element of this church or that church. No, what we rather see is it's not about attendance. It's about belonging. We see again and again after conversion that people are immediately baptized, and in their baptism, we see Scripture plainly say that they were added to their number. Now, the first Baptist church in Jerusalem, no doubt, did not have Alvanto to be able to manage their, their people, but they somehow had a system that they kept track of who were Christians. We see it's so important within the New Testament. Again and again, they were added to the number, added to the number, added to the number. These people kept track of who were, who were saved. It was important to them to know who were the Christians, not simply who said that they believed, but actually who was a genuine Christian. 
We see an example of this in Acts chapter 2, where 3,000 people are saved, and they are immediately baptized, and then they are added to their number. And after that, the whole number gathers together in the synagogue to worship God. That's church. In, in its function, that's them going to church. That's them being the church. But then after that, they continue to gather day after day in each other's homes for fellowship, for the breaking of bread, and the prayers. So what am I trying to show here? Well, over the years, a kind of consumer-mindedness has slipped into our hearts. And many of us, we bring this into the local church. And I don't need the body to help me grow is really the, the core of it. Essentially, I don't need the pastors or the elders being nosy in my spiritual life. I don't need accountability and care. I don't need exhortation when I sin or perhaps encouragement when I stumble. Or even, I don't need people to carry my burdens. I can and will do this alone. That kind of individual mindedness is how the local church crumbles. It is how we appropriate a universal church mentality while ignoring what God has said about the local church. Now, the problem is that this self-centered approach misses the point. It really focuses on what we can get out of church. The local church was, was designed by God to bless and keep His people. In other words, our membership is about God first, about others second, about ourselves lastly. What we call church membership is quite simply a summary of what Scripture describes for, for us to belong. It is that we commit ourselves to a group of believers to do all the one another statements that I mentioned, and these are just a few of them. Love one another, Romans 12 verse 10. Comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace with one another, Colossians, uh, sorry, 2 Corinthians 13. Do not lie to one another, Colossians 3.10. Carry one another's burdens, Galatians 6 verse 1. Bear with one another, Ephesians 2, 4 verse 2. Welcome one another, live in harmony with one another, Romans 15 verse 5. Jonathan Lehman summarizes membership like this in his book. Membership is how the individual Christians join the whole. It is how that whole take in other individual Christians, oversee their discipleship, and submit to one another in Christ-like love. If we will open our eyes, we will see that God has created the local church so that we might bless others and be blessed by others. So therefore, the local church in its gathering is what Mark Dever calls, and this is a helpful image, an earthly embassy of Christ's heavenly kingdom. An earthly embassy of Christ's heavenly kingdom. Now, before I went over to the, to the United States in 2011, I had to go to the American embassy in Sanson. And what amazed me walking into that embassy was seeing Americans doing American things in South Africa. Now, I know this shows my ignorance, but seeing their flag, seeing their soldiers with their guns, uh, seeing their people, their environment, their way of doing things, their speech, their music, their national anthem, all of that reminded me that not a single one of us would go to another country's embassy and say, because you live here, you need to look like us. That's the whole point, is that they're not like us. And this is what the local church is meant to be. It's meant to be a people within a people, a group within a group, a light in the darkness, where God's people gather together, where we do the things of God, where we hear from God, where we gather under our king's authority, where we sing praises to our God, and where citizenship to another land is offered to the world, where we are reminded about the mission and our hope. But what is obvious about this is that we gather. If we look into Scripture, we do not find a single example of a Christian who could gather and then did not gather. 
In other words, a Christian who does not join a local church is foreign to the Word of God. But this time of COVID has really tested our theology of the local church. Should we gather? Must we gather? What does that gathering look like? Can it change? When does God allow us to not gather? Can the government have a say over whether or not we do gather? Well, what we did during, during lockdown as a church was move to a platform whereby we could experience the grace of God through scattered means. We said from the beginning that it wasn't ideal, it wasn't a replacement, and it wasn't a genuine substitute. Virtual online church services are not church. And this is why we're calling everyone to come back. We come back and gather. Be obedient to Christ. Do not neglect the gathering. Come home. Come to the embassy. Come participate. Come love and be loved. Now, obviously, this morning, I'm quite literally speaking to the choir. Um, so to those of you who are gathering, this is what Scripture calls us to. Reach out to those who have yet to return. Reach out to those who are still scattered. It is your duty to love your brothers and sisters in Christ. Draw them back. Care for their needs. Understand their weakness. Go to them and assure them of your love and support. It is not ours to judge. We are not here to be God. We are to call Christians back. So reach out, reach out to those that don't yet, or that haven't yet returned. But can I say this in love? It is not an option for Christians who by all other means can go to gym, to the shops, who can go to school, university, to work, to be able to do social activities and carry on in life, to not regather with the church. To avoid and neglect the gathering together of the saints quite honestly and openly is sin. And for some, that is a sin that needs to be repented of, to be able to come back to Christ's people, to draw back to the local church. So the church, firstly, is a group of Christians who gather. Secondly, the church is those who do what God commands. And last week, we saw that Paul said that the gospel is of first importance. But it would make sense then that it's not just the gospel's initial work of salvation, but also the gospel's continuing work of sanctification in our lives, which is of first importance. And this is why at the center of what the church does is the proclamation of the gospel and Christ's commands. Jesus says in Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to be obedient to all that I have commanded you. Notice the priority of Jesus' command. Go and make disciples. When the church gathers, its job is to see God creating disciples through our faithful application of what he has called us to do. When we are taught to be obedient, that is discipleship. When God teaches us through his word, that is discipleship. And Joe Cole, the, the, the author of a book called Gospel-Centered Youth Ministry, he pertinently puts it in this way. If you are a Christian who belongs to a church, and you are not actively sharing the gospel and discipling others, I do not know what you mean by Christian. The work of the gathered church is to make disciples of all nations. Friends, are you doing that? Are you actively involved in the discipling of all nations? Here at Honey Ridge Baptist Church, are you gathering together with God's people to disciple? Can I speak firstly to the members here? You all have already committed to this local body. Are you serving in this purpose? And some of you might say that I'm not specifically gifted or skilled in serving in, in the needs that are currently available in the church, but can I just remind you briefly that God uses the willing. 
God calls us to be obedient. He doesn't call us to be skilled. He is the one that will provide. If you are not a member this morning, can I firstly appeal to you to formalize your commitment to the church? If this is your home church, if this is where you have found yourself and you are happy here, this is where you, you desire to serve the Lord and grow, then commit yourself to being a member here at the church. And do this before you carry on serving so that the church can function as Christ has commanded it to, where the elders have oversight in the lives of genuine Christians who have had their faith attested to publicly through baptism and where the body knows one another and deeply loves and cares for one another and witnesses that love through communion. Let us not be those who with one foot in the door are serving the Lord, with one foot out the door just in case a better opportunity would arise. Not only does Christ command that we would proclaim the gospel and his commands, but also that we would demonstrate the gospel. And the church is by design, those people who are seeking to live out the gospel implications and teachings. So the church is not only to preach and share the gospel, we are actually to do the very work of the gospel. We are told to live out the word of God, to demonstrate it. And the Lord Jesus, before he ascended into heaven, gave his disciples two practice, two practices to continue doing uh, when he left. And both of them are given to the church. So let's look first then at baptism. In Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20, uh, sorry, in Matthew 28, verse 20, we see Jesus give the command of the disciple-making element. And first and foremost, he says that disciples are to be baptized. Disciples are to be baptized. Can I ask you this morning, if you have not been baptized and you've been a Christian for any length of time, please be baptized. Be baptized upon credible profession of faith that you have a group of Christians that can witness to your faith and repentance to be able to assure you of the hope that you have in Christ, but also to be encouraged at what the Lord is doing. I just wanna highlight a few elements of just this one verse. Firstly, it is only believers who are baptized. Notice Jesus says, go and make disciples, not disciples and then their families. Go make disciples, and this assumes that a person is, who is genuinely converted and has begun the road of repentance and faith, although not yet mature, must be baptized. What we do not see is make disciples and baptize their children. What we do not see is make disciples and wait 10 years to baptize them. What we do not see is make disciples and make baptism optional. What we do see is make, make disciples and baptize them. Secondly, Baptized people are those who are expected to learn to obey Christ's commands. And this is really important. Because baptism is seen as the front door to the church house in Scripture, um, the local church then, it, it must follow that those who enter by the front door also understand how the family lives. And the family lives according to what God has said in His Word. So follow the illustration. Baptism is only the beginning of a growing relationship with God. It is entering through the front door. But then in a sense, baptism is also the Christian's first big public obedience, which should lead then to all other obediences to all of Christ's commands. Christ's command is clear, be baptized. Baptism also comes soon after salvation. And now this is a tricky one for us to be able to unpack because in the cultural context of the day, baptism was something which carried enormous ramifications. If you came from any other faith, if you came even from an unfaith background, for you to take up faith in Christ and to be baptized meant quite literally that you lost everything. It is why in Acts 2 we see them selling their possessions to provide for one another because these 3,000 people that were saved lost their lives. 
when they, when they were baptized and they publicly professed Christ, when they showed the world that they were now in Christ and no longer in the world, they lost everything. For us, baptism is something you can even invite your non-Christian friends to nowadays. So because of that, the church in its practices, and I think this is through wisdom, but it can be abused, we slow down the process to be able to allow the church to be able to witness one another's faith and repentance. But scripture is clear. When someone is saved, it mustn't be long. It mustn't be years. It mustn't be decades. It mustn't be over a period of time. When someone is saved and the gospel is clearly and gloriously at work in their hearts and the Holy Spirit is bringing about new life, they must be baptized. We also see elsewhere in Scripture that baptism is something which the church does to a believer. Notice that it's a two-person act. You can't baptize yourself. Uh, it is a two-person act in which the church confirms through observing a person's faith and repentance. The church then confirms that person's salvation, not in giving them salvation, but in saying, we agree, we see what the Lord has done, and it's a celebration. In looking back over the years of baptisms here at the church, in listening to Pastor Justin in the past talk about all the young people that were baptized, baptisms are literally where we are celebrating a living miracle of God. Someone who was once dead has been made alive. So baptism then is a joyful occasion. Sadly though, baptism, which Jesus says, is, which is one of the means of grace in the lives of true believers, is seen, by, is seen as an option by so many. But we must reorient our minds biblically. When it comes to the church, salvation makes us part of the universal church. Baptism is the front door to the local church. In the second place then, the church is told to partake in communion. So not only baptism, the front door, but communion, which helpfully, if we follow the illustration, is the family table. We're just going to go through a short passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 20 to 26. Uh, so please, if, you, if you'd like to turn there, you can, but I'm just going to read it for us. This is Paul writing. When you come together, notice those words, when you come together then, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For at the meal, each one eats his own supper. So one person is hungry, well, another gets drunk. Do you not have homes in which to eat and drink, or do you despise the church of God or humiliate those who have nothing? What should I say to you? Should I praise you? No, I do not praise you for this matter. For I received, and here's the correction, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, on the night he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So let's just unpack this briefly. Where and how should communion take place? Well, during the lockdown period, this is another element to, where, to which our theology of the church has been tested. Um, Paul clearly says here in 14 verses, just outside of the context of what I quoted, five times in 14 verses, when you come together. When you come together. This is an ordinance given to the church. Now, what was meant for us as a church, what lockdown did for us as a church, is that it put us in a position where we had to really work through our theology on what the church is. And this, again, is where the elders communicated, and I believe clearly so, that 
This communion in its ordinary way is to be practiced within the local church. What we did is that this meant that we used online means to try to be as faithful as we could to the clear commands of Christ, to partake, in the, to partake outside of the normal way, but still according to Scripture. But Paul is clear, and can I, can I with love, and I, I hope with gentleness, but with firmness say, when the church can gather, communion must be taken as a church. Unfortunately, again, due to our individualized idea of faith, we take what God has meant for the local body out into other spheres, and we partake it in ways that Scripture does not give us freedom to do. And I hope that these verses will make sense of what I'm trying to say. Paul says just a few verses earlier, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 16 and 17, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation or sharing in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, and here's, here's the function, here's the core of what we see communion being. Because there is one bread, we who are many become one body. So it is in the taking of communion that we actually see the church birthed. Since all of us share of one bread, we become one through the one bread. So notice what Paul is saying here. He's not saying when the church gathers, it's in that gathering that we take communion. He's saying communion makes the church gathering into a church. It joins the many believers into one. It symbolizes what Christ has done. It takes his death on the cross and it makes it real in our hearts, in our minds, in our lives. We, it doesn't create salvation, but rather what it does, it makes clear for us what Christ has done. And it's that when we look around the room for communion, when we come before the Lord and taking the elements, we should look to the people around us and joyfully celebrate what Christ has done and say the many have become one. But this command is not given to the universal church. This is Paul writing to the local church. And he writes about these two elements, the bread and the cup. The bread, when broken, symbolizes the body of Christ, broken on the cross, crushed for our sins. And the cup symbolizes the blood of Christ, which he says is the new covenant in his blood. So both the body and the cup together show the perfect, finished work of Christ in accomplishing salvation for his people. His body broken and his blood poured out as a sacrifice for our sins. And what is the purpose of communion? Well, Paul writes there where he quotes Jesus, do this in remembrance of me and to proclaim the Lord's death when he comes. So communion, when done properly, when done biblically, focuses on the Lord. It focuses on God's grace and mercy poured out for you and me. It focuses on God's justice in the sacrifice of his son. It focuses on the perfect finished work of Christ in accomplishing salvation. Communion, when done biblically, is in remembrance of Christ. But not only in remembrance of Christ in terms of what he's done, but also in the remembrance of Christ in the hope, the certain hope of his return. And this is how the church demonstrates the gospel. In baptism, the church acknowledges the initial work of the Holy Spirit. This work in the life of a believer, this new life given by God, it joins together an individual with a body where the many become one. In communion, the church acknowledges the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit to conform us into the image of Christ. It encourages us to look outside of ourselves and to focus on Christ. It points our eyes to one, to one another in encouragement, and it moves us away from individualism and reorients our eyes away from ourselves towards the earthly embassy of Christ's heavenly kingdom. So then, 
we see that God's command to His church to proclaim the gospel and His commands. We also see that God commands us to, do, to uh, live out His commands, to display the gospel. And lastly, we see the church is given the command to display God's love and holiness to the world. Now, we've already touched on in the beginning the who is the church. And now I want us to think a little bit more deeply about how does one continue being the church and what has God done about those who show that they were never a part of the church? To continue the analogy of the embassy, the church needs a way to issue new passports to those who have been saved out of the world or revoke passports from those who have shown that they are perhaps illegal aliens. Essentially, what we're going to be speaking about is discipleship and discipline. Jesus says in John 3 verse 3 that a Christian is someone who has been born again. And that's great, but what does that look like? I often hear people speaking about their salvation, and perhaps you, you hear this too, uh, where they speak about their salvation as a singular moment in their lives. They anchor their, their salvation on a particular moment. I know that I'm a Christian because I prayed the sinner's prayer, or I walked the aisle, or I gave my life to Jesus, or I invited Jesus into my heart. Well, the most common one that I believe is, is just, I believe in God. Others root their identity in Christian acts of service, perhaps ministries within the church, occasions in their life like baptism, or maybe even something as big as church membership. But Scripture doesn't seem to place a very high value on us looking to a moment for our hope. Scripture seems to point us outside of ourselves to Christ, and because it points us to Christ, it points us to the ongoing work of Christ in our lives. So in fact, what we see is warnings about assuming that we're Christians because of a single moment, because we can look religious, because we can point back to I prayed a prayer, because we can say at a holiday club at this time, I gave my life to Jesus, or I invited him into my heart. And as much as God does use all of those things, I don't discount the Lord's sovereignty and his work through all the means. We must see what Scripture does tell us. See, the problem here is when we base our hope on a singular moment in our lives, can we really be sure that we were sincere enough or maybe even understood the gospel well enough? How much of the gospel must we understand in order to believe it? Do we really know what we were doing? See, many of us don't even remember what prayer we prayed or how we felt. So what confidence in there is there in a moment? Well, here's the good news, and perhaps for some it's bad news, but Scripture is clear. The witness of God's Word is that what our, looks, uh, what our lives look like after that moment will be the true and genuine test of whether or not we're a Christian. So what is a Christian? Let's look at how this plays out. Uh, in, the, in the Greek, in, in Scripture, there's a, there's a kind of verb that we don't really have in English, and it's a kind of verb which means that you're doing it and then you continue to do it. It's a present continuous. It happens now and it continues to happen. And this is a couple of examples about where, where it's used. Uh, Jesus, uh, Paul says in Romans 10 verse 9, someone who confesses and believes that Jesus is the Lord and that God raised him from the dead for the forgiveness of their sins. So in essence, it actually reads someone who confessed and believes, believed and also continues to confess and believes that Jesus is the Lord and that God raised him from the dead for the forgiveness of their sins. That's a Christian. Someone who has repented of their sins and has trusted in Jesus, but also someone who has continued to repent of their sins and trust in Jesus, what Jesus says in Mark 1 verse 14. Someone who bears fruit with following genuine repentance, Jesus says in Matthew 3 verse 8. Someone who displays the fruits of the Spirit, Jesus says in Matthew 7. 
Someone who loves others as Christ loves us. Not once off, not sometimes, but continuously. If we look closely at these verses, uh, I believe what we'll see is that Scripture places a high priority outside of a singular moment, rather on a continuously changed life. A life of repentance and faith. A life of genuine love. A life of a new identity, new desires, new love, new priorities. In other words, born again. So when you think about how the church demonstrates Christ's love and holiness, we have to think along these lines. If, God, if God's priority is to create a changed people, a holy people, a people that look like Christ, how has he called us to help walk a road with, which is discipleship, those who are genuinely Christians, and lovingly warn those who are in danger because of perpetual ongoing sin? This is where these two themes of discipleship and discipline come together. On one hand, the church is called to disciple one another. Paul writes in Colossians 1 verse 28 that we proclaim him, Christ, warning and teaching everyone with wisdom, that's discipleship, so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That's a certain hope. On the other hand, the church is called to discipline one another. In Matthew 18, Jesus outlines this process of intentionally confronting others in their sin. Now, we won't have time to unpack this in any detail, so we'll just spend our last few minutes on Matthew 18, uh, but I'd like us to parallel it with a few verses from Ephesians 5 to see how, after Matthew 18, this was applied within a church. So Matthew 18, verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens, you have won your brother. If he won't listen, take one or two with you, so that by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. If he doesn't pay attention even to them, tell it to the church. And if he doesn't pay attention even to the church, let him be as a Gentile or a tax collector to you. So let's zoom in quickly on a few of these uh, details in this passage. Firstly, if someone sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. So here we see discipleship in action. Jesus commands us to go to someone in love, offering them grace and mercy, the mercy that Christ has shown us, not condemnation and guilt, but to offer them Christ. Come back away from that sin. Walk away from that. Come to Jesus. If he listens to you, you have won your brother, which means that it's not just a conversation about preferences and, and, and opinions. It's actually calling someone back to God by his standard in his word. And what we see paralleled in Ephesians 5 verse 6, we read, Let no one deceive you with empty arguments, for God's wrath is coming on the disobedient. There we have that first element, is warning someone about their sin. God's wrath is coming upon the disobedient. Turn away from this sin. Secondly, if you won't listen, take one or two with you to establish the facts. And here what we see is incredible. God's priority is not about one side being right. It's about loving the weak. Even in this moment, he says, Doesn't, don't just take yourself and go and hammer that again. Don't just go and perpetually knock on that door again. Take one or two witnesses with you to establish the facts. In other words, you might be wrong. When you go and speak to someone, you might be wrong. You might be the one in the wrong. You might be the one who's at fault here. But go and establish the facts, and then in that, speak to the person again with the truth and challenge them. Paul writes in Ephesians 5, verse 11, don't participate in fruitless works of darkness, but instead expose them. And this is part of the uncomfortable grace of God here, is to take one or two people with you, is to bring sin to light, is to shine a light on it, is to expose it so that it can be dealt with. And lastly, in verse 17, if he doesn't pay attention to them, tell it to the church. Now, we must pay careful attention to how God views the holiness of his people. 
At, the, at this point, the person has had the opportunity to listen to an individual, to a group of Christians, and to the local church. And this whole process is littered with uncomfortable grace, the kind of grace which calls us out of darkness into the light. And notice again what God's mean is, means are of drawing people out of their sin to Himself. It's the church. Now, if some are found uh, outside of this final step, we might say that this sounds unloving. Uh, how can it be? This is unkind. What if we put someone out? Only God can judge. But friends, this is why I tried to, in the beginning, spend a little bit of time anchoring us in the fact that God is the one who defines what the church is and what her practices are. Every part of this process is what our own hearts need. I need this, you need this. We need Christian brothers and sisters to come alongside us to be able to point out sin so that we can repent and believe, so that our lives can be those of continuous repentance and believing because that's the life of a true Christian. But this is how God's love and holiness is displayed in the church. There is no love in letting others walk down the road of darkness while we support them. And so many Christians see their friends walking in sin but do nothing about it because we do not understand both God's love or His holiness. And some might still ask, how can this process bring about any true change? Uh, if you speak to people about their sin, surely they'll walk away. Surely they'll just become disgruntled, upset. Surely they'll just leave the church. And in fact, yes, many do. But just to summarize, just out of 2 Corinthians 7, verses 8 to 10, this is what Paul writes about true repentance. I now rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because your grief led to repentance. For you were grieved as God willed, so that you didn't experience any loss from us. Notice God's uncomfortable brace brings about life and compassion and mercy and love. He speaks into the darkness and creates light. So what implications are there for a church's discipline and discipleship? Well, firstly, God calls His church to be holy. And God calls His church to love one another. And we'll see now that those two go hand in hand. And the way that we truly love one another is through discipleship, teaching the commands of God to one another in love, and in discipline, challenging one another where we walk away from the Lord. But amongst these practical examples, you might be asking, um, what about things like the worship of God? Where does that fit into the church? Can I just briefly anchor us in discipleship and discipline? The worship of God everywhere in Scripture, according to every single use of the word worship, especially found in the New Testament, is around discipleship. It is only in that we learn who God is that we can truly worship Him. You can't worship a God you don't know. What do you say? How do you address that God? What does it mean when you worship Him? What compassion are we shown in that unless God speaks? So even worship itself is first and foremost about God, but we need to learn about God in order to worship. There's discipleship. And discipline is when we don't live lives of worship of God, but we worship ourselves and then we pursue our own sin we need the discipline of the Lord through His people to draw us back to Himself to do true worship. So even elements such as worship can be found and rooted in God, in His clear commands, even in discipleship and discipline. So if we had to summarize what the church is then, I hope that we can see that these various elements that are all involved, these moving parts, the glorious work of Christ, I hope what we see is first and foremost that the church is a gathering of true believers who proclaim the gospel through the public teaching and preaching, through singing and praying, through the reflecting and memorizing and reciting of God's Word. Not only that, but it is those who attest to the power of the gospel through the new creation 
and the new birth of believers through the waters of baptism and affirm the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in their lives as we take communion together and become one body. And it is those who display the love and holiness of God to the world through a great desire to disciple one another, care for one another through the teaching of Scripture, as well as, where necessary, through the incredibly gentle, loving grace that God shows us that we need to apply then to one another in discipline. So how then do we show our thanksgiving to God for His church? Well, Jesus says in John 14, verse 15, if you love me, keep my commands. If you love me, keep my commands. Look at what Jesus is saying. He doesn't disconnect obedience from love. True obedience comes from love. We can all be simply obedient. We can make it happen. That's not real obedience. Real, true obedience is rooted in a love for who God is, for what He's done. So how are we thankful for the Lord, for His local church, for what He has done in the church? is to love him for how he's revealed himself and to be obedient to the commands that he has given us. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your word. Lord, we come to you this morning as your church here at Honey Ridge Baptist. Lord, we thank you that you have spoken to us through your word. Lord, where would we be without you? Where would we be if you had not revealed yourself to us? If you had not revealed your will, oh Lord, we would be lost, we would be nowhere, we would be nothing. Oh Lord, I just pray that you would have mercy and compassion on us. I pray that this morning as we have just looked at the the real tip of the iceberg of what you reveal in your word about who your church is and what it's meant to do, I pray, Lord, that our appetites would be wet and that by your Holy Spirit that you would continue to uh, call us to a kind of deep desire to learn from your word what the church is to apply ourselves to the practices that you have given us, Lord, to apply ourselves to be obedient in the witnessing of others' baptisms or our own if we haven't been, to the faithful taking of communion as we see the finished work of Christ, as we look forward to the hope that is found in his return. Oh, Lord, we so look forward to spending eternity with you. But even for now, Lord, while you have us here in your sovereignty, help us to be an obedient embassy of Christ's heavenly kingdom. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.